From WDEV, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Thanks for joining us. It's Wednesday, November 29th, and today the story everyone is discussing. Three young men shot in downtown Burlington, charges filed, an arrest made, all within the larger context of war between Israel and Hamas, hostage-taking, hostage deals, backroom negotiations, and the city of Burlington and all of us wrestling with how we got here. Our first guest will be Chittenden State's Attorney Sarah George, the prosecutor who brought the charges in the shooting case. We follow that with Joan Shannon, who is Democratic candidate for mayor of Burlington. She has just released her platform for public safety going forward uh, during the campaign. This would be our third in a series of interviews with the candidates. Uh, we talked to uh, Emma Volvani stanek and Karen Paul, and uh, we will get to C.D. Madison, or Madison as she likes to be called. But today, uh, around 10 o'clock, it'll be Joan Shannon. And lastly, books, our series, Short Takes with Mary Bisbee Beak. What should we be reading now? As always, we talk about great books that you may not be seeing in the usual places. It's a lot to get to. And of course, we take your calls at 802-244-1777. My email is vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. You can hear us on your AM and FM dial and worldwide online at wdevradio.com. Just click on the listen button. And if you missed this show, you can catch up with the podcast that we make available very soon after the show's conclusion. All that and more on VT Viewpoint. But first, let's review some of the news around the shooting in Burlington of the three young men and the larger tension around Israel and Hamas. Well, we are now clearly in a negotiation phase of the war. CIA Director William Burns is on his way to the region to speak with his counterparts at Mossad, the Israeli spy agency, and the uh, negotiators from the oil-rich country of Qatar. Um, the And there are, uh, let's see, we are now up to 180 Palestinian teenagers and women freed from Israeli prisons in recent days. And we are up to 81 hostages that the Hamas-led terror group has released into the hands of the Israelis. Since the attack in Israel on October 7th. Uh, the deal also includes a temporary ceasefire, which continues to hold. Uh, death toll in Gaza, 13,000 people, uh, and hundreds and hundreds of dead in Israel as a result of the October attack by Hamas. Vermont send, Vermont's congressional delegation continues to play a major role in this debate, Senator Peter Welch called for an indefinite ceasefire yesterday in the war. Welch issued a statement, gave an interview to the New York Times, in which uh, we have invited him on the show to discuss this in more detail. He could not make it today, but we'll have him on as soon as possible. Welch uh, joins Congresswoman Becca Ballant in calling for a ceasefire. Uh, the the media makes a lot of of hay out of the, the vocabulary of 
humanitarian pause versus ceasefire, I got to tell you, I'm not exactly sure uh, what the difference is. We should have an expert on the show to explain this. Um, but, you know, the, the fact that Bernie Sanders has not called for a ceasefire and Welch and Ballant have, I'm not sure. It, it, it seems like a distinction without a difference. Uh, Sanders continues to urge a pause in the fighting and for the U.S. to condition future funding of Israel with certain demands that he made in a major commentary piece in the New York Times last week. Now, Welch told the New York Times uh, yesterday, uh, quote, I support Israel aid. I always have. My big issue is not with aid to Israel. It's with the Israeli bombing that's having such a devastating impact on civilians. Now, remember, uh, Israel is the largest beneficiary of United States foreign aid in the world for its defense. It's about $3.8 billion each year. And there is a vote coming up in the United States Congress, probably starting in the Senate, maybe as soon as next week, about about whether uh, we should spend 3.8 billion plus billions more and the question that Bernie Sanders is asking and now Peter Welch is asking is how's that money going to be spent uh, as as Welch said there's a lot in there for Iron Dome that's Iron Dome is the Israeli uh, anti-missile defense system. That's great, he said. Humanitarian, that's great. 2,000-pound bombs, not so sure. So what you're seeing here is a is a is a, a fissure in the traditional support by members of Congress for Israel. Most Republicans are completely in support of whatever Israel wants to do, but the Democratic Party is is sort of cleaving apart here and debating um, whether or not to say to Israel, you can have the 3.8 billion and billions more, but you can only use it for X, Y, and Z. Uh, and that's, that's, uh, we're going to see where that goes. Uh, so the war comes home. A Burlington man, Jason Eaton, has been charged in the attempted murder of three young visitors to Burlington. They are of Palestinian descent. Eaton is accused of shooting three men from his front porch in downtown Burlington. He's been charged and is in jail with uh, and and has not posted bail. He is in jail without bail. And we'll talk to our next guest about the details of that. As I said, Chittenden Prosecutor Sarah George will George will join us momentarily. The victim the victims are Kenan Abdelhamid, Hisham Awartani, and Tashin Ali Hamad. They are recovering at UVM Medical Center. One of them is said to be facing the rest of his life unable to walk. Family members answered media questions this week and said they felt betrayed by an America in which their children are less safe than in the cauldron of the West Bank and Gaza. Eaton, 48, is accused of shooting the three men as they walked down the street Saturday afternoon. The three were said to be wearing the traditional Palestinian scarves known as the kafiyeh. I probably pronounced that wrong. Everyone from the governor on down has expressed outrage at the crime and said Vermont has no place for hate. Um, 
boy, there's no better uh, chance. There's nothing more. Uh, what's the word that that falls more short than politicians expressing their uh, their prayers and their you know sympathy for victims. Uh, but at some level, it's all some some political leaders have. The the question then becomes, what next? I know we will see a spate of criminal justice proposals from the governor this legislative session. Why did this happen? What exactly is Eaton accused of? Is it a hate crime? Uh, We will ask this question to the Chittenden State's attorney, Sarah George, right after this break. We'll be right back. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and I'm Kevin Ellis, and you're listening to WDEV. Welcome back. Welcome back. And we're talking about the tragic shooting that happened last Saturday in Burlington, which happened within the other tragedy of the deaths of Israelis and Palestinians in the latest war in that region that seems to have no end. But for the moment, we will focus on Burlington and the situation there that is testing everyone from the mayor and the police department to citizens, not to mention our next guest, Chittenden State's Attorney Sarah George. Sarah, welcome to the show. Good morning, Kevin. Thanks for having me. So, well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you must be incredibly busy, but I there is so much news about this that I, I was hoping that you could bring us up to date with the facts of the case as you know them at the moment. Um, the actual facts underlying or just where we're at in the case? Well, just where we're at in the case. Can you okay. Can you review what your office has done? So far, yes. So, um, well, before Mr. Eaton was arrested, uh, I was in close contact with BPD, Burlington Police Department, working on warrants um, to try to determine who uh, committed this heinous crime. And then, once we determined it was Mr. Eaton, um, we got him into custody, and our office filed charges, um, specifically three counts of attempted murder um, for this. Uh, violence against these three young men. Um, They are three life felonies, which means that he faces up to life on each count and a minimum, a presumptive minimum of 20 years on each count. Um, And so that's that's where we are right now. He was arraigned on those charges. He was held without bail at our request. And the next step would be an evidentiary hearing. So the state, in order to hold somebody without bail, has to essentially prove to the court that our evidence of guilt is great. So that will be scheduled in the next couple of weeks. Okay, I see. That has not been scheduled. Not yet. Uh, Okay. Uh, Can you explain to us what you know about how this act happened? Uh, I read one report where he was in a house and he walked out on the front porch and and shot, allegedly shot the victims. Uh, Can you just tell us more about the background of of what exactly you know happened? Yeah, so I mean, the statements that we have about what happened are from these three young men <clears throat> um, who say that they were walking down the street uh, around 6.30 p.m. and a, a white man in his 30s or 40s came off from a porch um, in the area of 69 North Prospect Street with a pistol and started shooting at them. Um, their statements are that no words were exchanged between them and this person. 
um, and he, this person struck all three of them um, and then walked away. There is a, another witness who says they heard the gunshot, kind of came around the corner and saw a man um, putting something back sort of in his waistband and then walking away. So they sort of see the, the end of it. Uh, but that's, that's what we know. And then, you know, when later law enforcement were canvassing this area and then apartment building at the area of the 69 North Prospect, and an individual opened the door and all he said to the law enforcement officer was, I've been waiting for you. And he had his hand sort of showing palms out sort of at his waist area um, when he said that and he looked really nervous. They asked if he had any firearms in the home. He said he had a shotgun. They asked if he had anything else and he asked for a lawyer. And we did then recover the gun that was used um, to shoot these three boys in the apartment. So we, you know, we feel very confident that it, it was him that committed this act, but of course it is still um, an allegation. And there's been lots of talk about uh, a hate crime. Can you explain the law around uh, the statute around hate crimes and whether or not you would apply that uh, if you found the right evidence or whether you would choose not to? Can you just explain that, how that works? Yeah. So typically in a prosecution, the state does not ever have to prove somebody's motive in order to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. But if you add a hate crime enhancement, which in Vermont, it's an enhancement, it's not an additional crime, uh, that's an exception to the rule. So if we add a hate crime enhancement to a criminal charge, motive becomes an additional element that the state has to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So we can't add that enhancement based on our suspicions or our opinions of the motive. We have to have direct or concrete irrefutable evidence um, which we are working to get. We are working with BPD, Burlington Police Department, um, very closely to determine whether or not we can access that information, whether it exists. And if we do find that it exists and that this was targeted um, for a particular purpose as a hate crime, then we will absolutely add that enhancement to the charge. I would just note um, when it is a life felony that you're adding it to, it actually doesn't enhance the penalty at all. It just is, it can be used as an aggravating factor in sentencing. Um, in this particular case, and I think actually in most hate crimes, um, if there is a hate crime enhancement, it's really for the message. You know, it's, it's important for that particular community that was targeted um, to be really clear about what this was. So regardless of it not impacting the sentencing, if we find evidence to support that it was, we would add that enhancement for that purpose. Does, uh, yeah, it's okay. So does the accused, uh, Mr. Eaton, have a public defender or private counsel? Right now he has a public defender from the Chittenden County Public Defender's Office. He could still decide okay. to hire private counsel, but um, he has not done that. And why did you ask that he be held without bail? Well, we as an office ask for any individual that in, that engages in gun violence um, to be held without bail just because of the sheer danger um, in our community that those types of offenses create. In this 
instance, um, the allegations are that an individual with absolutely no criminal history walks outside of his apartment at 6.30 p.m. and starts shooting people. Um, That is one of the utmost terrifying circumstances for our community. This is not something that happened in a home where it was they knew the individuals, there was an argument, there was some other motive, um, not to say those aren't also terrifying, but this in particular seemingly unprovoked um, attack is the utmost threat to our safety. So we felt like it was important to um, ask this court to hold him without bail and, and we will continue to fight to keep him um, incarcerated throughout the pendency of this case. Uh- this, when you think about the prosecution and investigation in this case, does the fact that they are of Palestinian descent, number one, number two, that they were visitors, number three, that they were wearing the traditional uh, Arab scarf, the kafaya, do those, do those uh, sort of personal, uh, are they irrelevant? No, I mean, they're always important. People's identity is always important when you're looking at the prosecution of a case and how you investigate it. You will look at evidence in every single case differently depending on who is committing the violence or committing the offense and who it was targeted towards. Um, so we, it is very important. It's always important. I think that the difference is what we perceive from what we see is different than what we can prove. And so it's, a, it's of course, important. It, it makes the randomness of this incredibly important. It makes, you know, that it was unprovoked, that it was three young uh, men in our community. And, yeah, that it is given the national attention that, it, that they are three young men of Palestinian descent. Those are incredibly important facts as a prosecutor. Um, but again, those those facts in themselves are not enough right now for us to charge hate crime, but certainly for us to consider as we're prosecuting this case and investigating it. And for example, like, you know, if they, <clears throat> they hadn't been, if they had been three young white men, um, we wouldn't be able to get search warrants looking for motives. You know, those, we wouldn't have grounds for that, for looking at this case as a hate crime. So it always plays, it always plays a really big role um, in our, in our investigation and how we look at the case. Uh, Can you, can you repeat if you would, and and thank you for bearing with me. I'm trying to keep to the basics so that the public, the listeners can really understand how this is going to work. You mentioned an evidentiary hearing. Can you talk to us about how that will go Mm -hmm. and, who the judge is in the case, et cetera? Yeah. So in Vermont, when the state requests that somebody be held without bail, that is the ultimate um, revocation of their liberty. And we do it, we can only do it, we can only request it when it is a felony crime of violence. And when we can prove to the court that the evidence of guilt is great. So 
in order for the court to continue to hold anybody who's being held without bail indefinitely, the state has to essentially put on an evidentiary hearing and prove to the court that their evidence of guilt is great. And if the court finds that it is, and in this case, because it's life felonies, the court also has to, there's a presumption that if the, if the evidence of guilt is great, that he will be held, um, then he will be held until, until trial. If it wasn't a life felony, then and the court found that the evidence of guilt is great, there's actually a presumption that they'd be released after 60 days. So the court can only hold them for 60 days and then they're released into the community. And so in the next couple of weeks, it'll be set for a hearing. I don't know if it'll be in front of Judge Rainville again. That's who did the arraignment, but he may not be the one that stays on it. Uh, the, the state will have to bring in witnesses to essentially prove um, our case. And if, again, if the court finds that we have, then the presumption in this case would be to hold him. Sarah, this shooting takes place amid a raft of other shootings in Burlington. Um, so many of us are not used to this in Burlington or around Vermont. Can you talk about this shooting and the other recent shootings that have been taking place and how you look at that from a criminal justice and community safety standpoint? Yeah, I, I think the first thing I really want to highlight is that it briefly, but this is happening around Vermont. Um, in a way that we have never seen before. The number of homicides that have happened just this year around Vermont um, is really staggering. Um, I, I believe almost all, if not all, um, firearms, I believe in October, you know, uh, VSP was responding to them, it seemed like weekly. Uh, and yes, in Burlington as well. Um, I think it, it is a, a lot of them have been related to drugs um, and the drug trafficking system that we have between other states and Vermont. I think it's in part because of the incredible ease of attaining firearms um, in this country. And just generally, I mean, we live in a, we live in a world of divisiveness and hate right now, um, rather than any sort of inclusion and love. Our media, our social media are filled with harmful and often false rhetoric that provokes these hateful beliefs amongst each other, puts us against each other. Um, and when it's coupled with a nation who's obsessed with firearms and easy access to the same, it's, it's not, not just predictable that violence is going to occur, it's, it's inevitable. And Vermont is not an exception to this. And I think we often think we are, and that's, that doesn't do us any favors because then when things like this happen, we we're surprised by it. And, you know, we really need to be paying more attention to how we're treating each other on these other mediums and, and ask ourselves if we really should be so surprised. Uh, you, you, yeah. You, you talk about those mediums. So social media, it's, You've been outspoken for years now in your desire uh, to reform the criminal justice system and how it operates. And when a situation like this happens, a shooting like this, we, we I think all of us tend to revert back to what we know. I'm going to think of a John Wayne movie or 
uh, the way we were all sort of raised, find the lawbreakers and lock them up. Um, how are you seeing this case and other cases within your jurisdiction, within the way you're thinking about reforming the system itself? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that even in these, the most heinous of offenses that we see, and, you know, looking at these cases in particular where somebody doesn't have any criminal record, um, you can still, you know, and we'll see this case is really early, but in others that I've had, you can still see those threads of of mental health needs not being met or substance use needs not being met or instability in housing or employment, um, some of those threads that go back a long time that you can see weren't, weren't being addressed. And this is, you know, sort of what happens. And, and we see that a lot with gun violence. We see individuals who have resorted to these different particular lifestyles because they have long criminal histories that have set them up for failure. They have long criminal histories that have made it impossible for them to get other work, impossible for them to maintain stable and safe and affordable housing. You know, so we still see all of the same threads I talk about. And, and my goals are to try to get in front of that much earlier um, when these individuals start engaging in this behavior to try to keep them either out of the system or keep them from having these criminal convictions that are just a spiral for individuals that ultimately end up putting them in positions that they can't get out of. And then we wonder why they're, you know, for example, selling drugs. Well, they're selling drugs because we have set them up to be to be able to do nothing else. Um, so, you know, we take the cases seriously once they're at this level. We take them seriously the entire time. We are, if somebody is committing gun violence, we are asking for them to be held in jail. Um, if somebody tells you we are not doing that, it is not true. Um, but we also still really need to be focusing on these things much sooner because by the time we get to this point, it's too late and we're reacting to it. And we are often reacting to it emotionally because we're angry and we're scared. And those are not the ways that we want to be addressing behaviors because like you said, you know, we know what we do in those situations and it's not good. Uh, Sarah, you mentioned that, that uh, he had a uh, a handgun, but you, that he also that that the accused also had a shotgun in his house. So he had guns, uh, and it's pretty clear from the shootings going on in Burlington and around Vermont that people have a lot of guns. Can you address the fact that he had two weapons uh, in his house and what that means for the rest of us? Yeah, I would just clarify that he told the law enforcement officer that he had a shotgun. Um, ah, okay. I actually am I am not sure whether they found a shotgun in the home, but they did find a, a three eighty um, handgun, which is what was used um, in this particular instance, and it was it was purchased from Powderhorn in Wilston, Vermont, um, I believe, in April. Uh, and as far as we can tell, was was purchased. Um, legally uh, didn't raise any of the sort of standard barriers um, that Vermont at least applies. And, you know, I, we'll see, you know, I think it's a little too soon in this particular case to know like 
if he should have been flagged for any particular reason or um, if if he wasn't. And, you know, I think that we can't, we're never going to be able to keep everybody from having guns. Unfortunately, if they can't get it legally, there are plenty of ways to get it illegally. Um, so we really need to be figuring out why we have this obsession with them. And again, you know, focusing on how we can be meeting people's safety needs so they don't feel like they need to carry a gun and, and in particular use a gun um, when they feel unsafe. But that's a really, that's a hard thing to do. And right now as a country and frankly as a state, we have prioritized the um, the possession of the guns over what's making people feel the need to buy them. Uh, in 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 preparing for this uh, interview, I I went through comments on Twitter and Facebook uh, about the the issue, um, and especially uh, underneath many of the statement uh, you, the statement you made, and I you know it, it is um, it's a real sewer out there social media, and my question is uh, you take a lot of uh, of criticism personally. Uh, criticism, I think, is a light word to use. You get attacked relentlessly on social media. Um, I think, uh, it, it, and that that reflects what you talked about earlier, our, our fear and anger and all sorts of other problems that exist in society. Do you uh, read the comments on social media, A, and B, does it have any impact on the way you do your job or prosecute this particular case? Yeah, thanks, Kevin. I I do read them. Um, I wish my answer was no. I know my answer should be no, but it's not. I do. And it's, it's pretty disheartening. Um, it's unfortunate that, you know, I used to get a lot of them on Twitter and, and, Instagram was sort of my safe place, but lately um, Instagram has become so much worse even than Twitter. Um, death threats and rape threats and uh, a lot of really, really horrible things said um, based on on things that people are often wrong about, right? Like thinking that we're not prosecuting anything or thinking that because somebody is quote unquote back on the street, it means my office um, let them out or released them or you know, no consideration for the fact that we have laws we have to follow and that people are entitled to their freedom by our constitution. Um, it really is a strange world we live in where we blame one person um, for everything happening in a community and think that they have that much power, you know, not to minimize the power of a prosecutor, but I don't have that much power. Um, and people seem to feel some sense of um, entitlement and uh, right, yeah, to to say things and believe things, and it's it's frankly dangerous. Um, is the more that we condone that, and the more that we spread that misinformation and that hate, it's dangerous. It's dangerous for me personally, um, given that often my life is threatened. But it's also dangerous for our community to continue to put people in this fear um, and think that they aren't safe and give them this perception that they aren't safe. Um, it's, it's really harmful uh, to our community as a whole, especially when it's based on, 
um, lies and, and misinformation. And last question, Sarah, before we have to let you go, because I know you're, you've got a busy court schedule. Uh, we're going to interview Joan Shannon on this show right after this. Uh, we have interviewed Emma Mulvaney-Stanick and, and Karen Paul, and we'll get to Madison as well. What, what should I be asking candidates for mayor, uh, and do you have a preferred candidate in the mayoral election? I didn't know you were doing that. That's great. Um, I mean, obviously, my my particular topic that I look at every mayoral candidate is their public safety plan. Um, you know, I think Emma's came out first, uh, and then Karen. I think Joan just came out with hers um, yesterday. So I look at each one of them and and determine not just what they're saying they'll do, but it's really important to me that when someone's running for office, they aren't just sort of using the right words, but they're actually coming up with plans um, and actions. Because it's really easy for somebody to say, I'm going to make our safe street again, our streets safe again, um, or, you know, whatever their slogan might be. But actually doing that is difficult, and it requires really brave decisions. It requires resources. And I always want to know what resources you're going to put towards public safety. And if their answer is more cops before their answer is more services um, or their answer is more prosecutors before their answer is more services, um, that is typically telling to me because we are not solving this problem. You know, police and prosecutors are not solving this problem. Um, we really need to be addressing people's basic needs. And right now the service options in Chittenden County and, in, and around Vermont are severely lacking. Um, and that requires money, that requires bravery, and it requires, like, action, actual steps to be taken. So those are the things I always look for. Um, I haven't, I ha I don't have a, a candidate. Um, I'm really just excited to sort of see all of it and listen to everybody talk about their plans, um, not just in emails. I'm really hoping we get some opportunities to really listen. So I'm glad to know that Karen and Emma have been on. I will listen to those. Um, segments to hear what they're what they've said okay that is chittenden state's attorney sarah george uh thank you for joining us as always um we'll we'll come back to you as this case uh proceeds we really appreciate you coming on absolutely it was nice to talk to you kevin we'll talk to you soon welcome back our next guest is the third candidate in a series of interviews of those running for mayor of Burlington. We started with progressive Emma Mulvaney-Stanick and continued with City Council President Karen Paul. And now Joan Shannon, a Democrat who hopes to secure the party's nomination at a caucus in December. Joan Shannon, welcome to the show. Ah. I'm so sorry. I, uh, I I got myself out of order there. Sorry to the audience. Uh, <laughs> Joan Shannon's coming on at 10 o'clock. So right now we were going to uh, do some news and open the phones, 244-1777. Uh, I wanted to uh, just take a moment to uh, remind everybody that Rosalind Carter died this week. The wife of Jimmy Carter, a lifelong uh, advocate for those uh, suffering from mental health problems. Um, her, she had a service 
uh, in in Atlanta this week, and uh, and let's see, Bill Clinton was there, Hillary Clinton was there, Melania Trump was there, uh, 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 Barack Obama was not there. Interestingly enough, Michelle Obama was. Uh, I thought it was it was it was uh, it was a really beautiful service. Fun to see a joke made at the expense of the male. Uh, presidents in attendance, uh, they, the uh, family of uh, Rosalind and Jimmy Carter thanked uh, the, 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 the women for coming, Secretary of State, Clinton, etc., and their lovely husbands uh, who were joining them. So I thought that was, thought that was apropos. Uh, it got a laugh out of the crowd. And uh, so I want to uh, go back to the uh, the Burlington shooting, choosing my words carefully here because we've, it's just so, there's so much rage out there and uh, I want to be as accurate as I possibly can. So one of the victims is Isham Awartani. He is a student at Brown University and he has issued a statement and he is the one who is said to have, uh, because he has been uh, shot near the spinal cord, is going to lose the ability to walk and he's issued a statement uh, through his uh, his Brown University organization called SJP at Brown University, and I will read it. It's important to recognize that this is part of a larger story. The hideous crime did not happen in a vacuum. As much as I appreciate and love every single one of you here today, I am but one casualty in this much wider conflict. Had I been shot in the West Bank where I grew up, the medical services that saved my life here would likely have been withheld by the Israeli army. The soldier who shot me would go home and never be convicted. I understand that the pain is so much more real and immediate because many of you know me, but any attack like this is horrific, be it here or in Palestine. This is why when you say your wishes and light your candles today, your mind should not just be focused on me as an individual, but rather as a proud member of a people being oppressed. Now, that those comments are from one of the victims of the shooting in Burlington. Uh, I can imagine how some uh, on uh, uh, Israelis might be uh, affronted by that uh, statement, or at least feel neglected or ignored. Uh, I, I guarantee you that we are not ignoring your view. I am constantly working on having uh, Israeli views on the show. But at the moment, uh, we're, we're focusing at the moment on these these Palestinian victims. Uh, and we will get to every single view of this of this issue because it's so difficult. But it's important that we continue to take it on, which we will do. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Joan Shannon, who's a Democratic candidate for mayor. I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV.